0: good morning guys morning. well we've been through a lot I, this study uh, I think this is the s- fifth or sixth lesson uh, on the love of God we could go on there's more if we wanted to but uh, summer's coming up I can't make it next month and that's why we're combining these two uh, into uh, into one to, to finish up the series for this season uh, you know, we started out with God is love, and we looked at how people can misinterpret that. Uh, it's amazing how people can twist scripture. And, and we looked at the different ways people twist it and how to properly understand it. Uh, we also understand we can't study God's love without understanding his wrath. At the same time, they go hand in hand. They're not mutually exclusive. And uh, you can love somebody and hate somebody at the same time. Uh, there's different degrees of love we learned and even in our own lives we experience those different degrees of love we have love for the unlost we have love for our next-door neighbors we have a, a different kind of love for our children our siblings uh... And a and a special love for our our wives and of course a special love for christ so there's different degrees of love that can be out there So you have to be careful when someone says god is love or I love somebody. Well, what, in what context and how do you mean that? And not extrapolate it improperly within the context that the word of love is used in at the time that you read that. Uh, and we talked about John 3.16. In fact, let's turn our Bibles to John 3.16. I want to put this in context, too. If you can turn, we'll we'll spend a few minutes in this verse, but I'm going to read the whole context of John 3.16 just uh to get this position. And I'm going to all start right from chapter 3, verse 1 with Nicodemus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him." So there's an acknowledgement. You know, we're talking about the historical Christianity. They knew Jesus was doing miracles. There's Nicodemus acknowledging it, a Pharisee. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly. And when he says two words like that, behold, behold, or truly, truly, uh, pay attention, please. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? That's a pretty uh, damning rebuke right there. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to that we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who ascended, descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the sermon in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, a prediction of his resurrection. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now 3.16. For God so loved the world because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and your teaching and your revelation to us and what you want us to know what your plan for redemption is, your rescue mission for us, that you send Christ to die for our sins and to pay for our sins, to pay the ransom because the wages of sin are death, and we all sin. And we thank you for that gift, and we freely accept it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first topic I want to talk about is God's love for humanity. John 3.16 is probably the most familiar passage in the Bible. But it's also one of the most abused and least understood passages of the Bible, even though it's the most popular and we see it everywhere, right? I don't know how those guys in the end zone are always there with John 3:16, or at the hockey, or the baseball games out in the outfield trying to catch the balls, but uh, they seem to get some good seats. <laughs> but we see it everywhere. But a lot of these people, unfortunately, presume on God's love and maybe not love him in return. Some of these people are not good testimony for, the, uh, for God. They're The verse is often quoted as evidence that God loves everyone exactly the same in that he is infinitely merciful as if the verse has negated all the biblical warnings of condemnation for the wicked. And that's not the point of John 3.16. One only has to read verse 18 to see the balance to that truth. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Surely that is a truth that needs to be proclaimed to the world as least as urgently as John 3.16. So does God love the whole world is the big question mark. Some Christians actually deny that God truly loves the whole world. More and more Christians who want to argue that the only correct interpretation of John 3.16 is one that actually limits God's love to the elect and eliminates any notion of divine love for mankind in general. False teachers teach, if God loved everyone, everyone would be saved. It is as, as simple as that. Clearly not everyone is saved. Therefore, God does not love everyone. And this is how quickly you can twist Scripture. You know, false teachers twist Scripture when they don't have the balance in what the whole context of the message is talking about. But neither Scripture nor sound logic will support such a conclusion or bold assertions. Applying logic to an incomplete set of propositions about God has often yielded the bitter fruits of false doctrine. We must constantly check our logical conclusions against the more sure word of scripture. In this case, the notion that God's love is reserved for the elect alone does not survive the light of scripture. As we've seen thoroughly in this study, scripture clearly says that God is love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is all, all that he has made. Psalm 145, 9. Christ even commands us to love our enemies, as we know. And the reason he gives is this, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Matthew 5:45, from the Sermon on the Mount. The clear implication is that some, in some sense, God loves His enemies. The lo- he loves both the evil and the good, both the righteous and the unrighteous. In precisely the same sense, we are commanded to love our enemies. In fact, as we know, it's the second greatest commandment that God gave, "You shall love your neighbor as yourself." Mark 12:31, and it comes from Leviticus, 1918, is a commandment to love everyone. We are commanded to love our enemies. And we pray for their salvation. We can be certain that the scope of this commandment is universal because in Luke 10, 29, Luke records that a lawyer wishing to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus went on to recite the parable of the good Samaritan. The point even Samaritans, a semi pagan race who had utterly corrupted Jewish worship and whom the Jews generally detested as enemies of God, who weren't even allowed to walk in Samaritan territory, were neighbors whom they were commanded to love. In other words, the command to love one's neighbor applies to everyone. This love is commanded here is clearly universal, indiscriminate love. Consider this. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law in every respect. He tells us that in Matthew five seventeen eighteen. 18. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to you to abolish them, but, abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished, including this command, of universal love, which was just quoted in a couple verses before this. After all, the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians five fourteen, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbors as yourself. He recites, he reiterates these, this theme in Romans thirteen eight for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Therefore, Jesus must have loved his neighbor. And since he himself defined neighbor in universal terms, we know that his love while on earth was universal. Look again at the context of John three sixteen. There's no delimiting language anywhere in the context. It doesn't say love some but or except. It's a declaration of good news. And it's a point to say that Christ came into the world on a mission of salvation, not a mission of condemnation. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. To turn it around and make it an expression of divine hatred against those whom God does not intervene to save is to turn the passage on its head. So then, Is God sincere in his gospel offer? According to some, God's act of benevolence towards the non-elects have no other purpose than to increase their condemnation for rejecting the message in its increasing their condemnation. Such a view imputes the insincerity to God. It suggests that God's pleading with the reprobate are artificial, and, it, and that his offer of mercy are mere pretense. Often God makes statements that reflect on a yearning for the wicked to repent, like in Psalm 81, 13, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. And again, in Ezekiel 18, 32, he says, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, so turn and live. There's the gospel, right? Repent and believe. God freely and indiscriminately offers mercy to all who will come to Christ. Come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." Matthew eleven twenty eight thirty, 30. God himself says, "'Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, "'for I am God and there is no other.'" And that comes from Isaiah forty five twenty two. And then God continued in Isaiah 55, seven. "'Let the wicked forsake his way "'and the unrighteous man his thoughts. "'Let him return to the Lord "'that he may have compassion on him and to our god for he will abundantly pardon some deny that god's pleading with the reprobate reflect any real desire on god's part to seek the wicked to turn from their sins to them suggesting that god would have unfulfilled desire is a direct attack on his divine sovereignty god is sovereign they suggest and he does whatever pleases him whatever he desires he does We have to admit, that's a little bit of a problem we have to deal with. If God is sincere, then he would have unfulfilled desires. For example, in Isaiah 46.10, God states, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. He is, after all, utterly sovereign. It is not improper to suggest that any of his actual, is it not improper to suggest that any of his actual desires remain unfilled. Scripture clearly proclaims God's absolute and utter sovereignty over all that happens. He declared the end of all things before time began. Also in Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning. So whatever comes to pass is in perfect accord with his divine plan. What God has purposed, He will also do, as Isaiah forty-six, ten and eleven tell us. God is not at the mercy of contingencies; He is not the subject of His creatures' choices. He works all things after the counsel of His will, Ephesians one eleven. Nothing occurs but that which is in accord of His purposes, Acts four twenty-eight. Nothing can thwart God's design, and nothing can occur apart from his sovereign decrees Isaiah forty three thirteen and Psalm thirty three eleven. He does he does all his good pleasures. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth in the seas and in all the deeps Psalm one hundred thirty five six. But what does but that does not mean God derives pleasure from every aspect of what he's decreed. God explicitly says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked that we just read in Ezekiel 18.32. He does not delight in evil, Isaiah 65.12. He hates all expressions of wickedness and pride, we read in Proverbs 6 and 16 through 19. Since none of these things can occur apart from the decree of a sovereign sovereign God, we must conclude that there is a sense in which his decrees do not always reflect his desires, his purposes are not necessarily accomplished in accordance with his preferences. We know that he's fully sovereign. We do, know, we do not know why he does not turn the heart of every sinner to himself. Nor should we speculate in this area. We went into that last month about Job and what, ha- what happened with Job. It remains a mystery the answer to which God has not fit to reveal as Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine reminds us, the secret things belong to the Lord of God, Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us. In Isaiah fifty five, eight through nine, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And at some point, we must say with the psalmist in 139.6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. We're not going to know on this side of heaven. So then, in what sense is God's love universal? And there's four things here in the outline. One is common grace as we read in Matthew 5:45 for he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain to the unjust or to the just and on the unjust he doesn't withhold the rain from the unjust or the sun from the evil in past generations in Acts 5:16 we read in past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways yet did not leave himself without witness For he did good by giving you rains from the heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Romans 2, 4. Really what led me, I think, to repentance was later on in Romans when it says, the law was given to us to sin more, to realize we can't save ourselves and that we, it's, the law is actually pointing to a Savior because we can't keep the law. That was a big light bulb for me in, in my walk. And then what about God's compassion that he shows for the whole world? Psalm 86, 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Daniel 9, 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Some say God's love, God loves you for what you are. You must see yourself as someone special. After all, you are special to God. But that misses the point entirely. We see false prophets doing that. We saw that in the Wednesday night bottle style. Ted White down there, lengthening one leg over another. You are special to God. God does not love us for what we are. He loves us in spite of what we are. He does not love us because we are special. Rather, it's only his love and grace that gives us our lives and significance at all. We're sinful beings that don't deserve his love. So what about admonition? God's universal love is revealed not only in common grace and his great compassion, but also in his admonition to repent. God is constantly warning the reprobate of their impending fate and pleading with them to turn away from sin. As Spurgeon said, don't let anybody die without your hands around them, preaching the gospel to save them before they fall into hell and die. Everybody should be pleaded with and prayed for before they pass away. God is constantly warning us. Nothing demonstrates God's love more than the various warnings throughout the pages of Scripture, urging sinners to flee from the wrath to come. God evidently loves sinners enough to warn them. And then finally, the gospel offer itself. Finally, we see the proof that God's love extends to all in the gospel offer. No one is excluded from the gospel invitation. And that's why we're here, is to proclaim that gospel to everyone. Salvation in Christ is freely and indiscriminately offered to all. The gospel invites many to come who are unwilling to come. Many are called who are not chosen. The invitation to come is given indiscriminately to all. Whosoever will may come, the invitation is not issued to the elect alone. John five thirty nine forty. 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus Christ, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Okay, so what about God's love for the elect? No one ought to conclude that because God's love is universally extended to all that God, therefore, loves everyone equally. And I talked about this in the opening Marks remarks. The fact that God loves every man and woman does not mean he loves them all alike. Clearly, he does not. In Romans 9.13, as we've gone in past lesson, Apostle Paul was quoting from the Old Testament book of Malachi, describing God's demeanor towards the twin sons of Isaac's, or the tribes. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul tells us why in verse 11 in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of whom he calls. Paul is teaching that God is sovereign in the exercise of his love. God has set his love on certain individuals in eternity past and predestined them to eternal life. So are there limits to God's universal love? The compassionate love and goodness God bestows on all humanity has its limits. It may be resisted. It may be rejected. It may be spurned. Therefore, God's compassionate love and His goodness ultimately give away to hatred and judgment. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. 1 Corinthians 16.22 If God hated only the sin and not the sinner... He would strip the sin away from the redeem, and redeem the sinner rather than casting the whole person into hell. Remember what God, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 10:28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. And how many times have we seen people teaching the false doctrine? Hate the sinner, hate the sin, love the sinner. So while there is a genuine sense in which God loves is universal in extent, there is another sense in which it is limited in degree. The love of God for all humanity is not the sort of love that guarantees everyone's salvation. It is not a love that nullifies his holy abhorrence of sin. It is not a saving love. So for the elect, what is the magnitude of God's saving love? God reserves a special love. It's even a greater love of God that does accomplish the salvation of sinners. I thank God every day. I mean, it's a special love bestowed from all eternity on those whom he has chosen as his own. God's love for those who believe his love for the elect is infinitely greater in degree than his love for humanity in general. Here we are talking about a very and very important doctrine of scripture. And we wouldn't believe it if it wasn't in scripture. We wouldn't reason this on our own, with our own depraved minds. God has a special love for his own, his chosen people, and that he loves them with an eternal, unchanging love. In John 13, 1, reread the love of Christ for his disciples. And you want to make a note of John 13, 1, I think, I think it's the only one I printed in the handout, the only scripture I printed on the back page. You'll see it in the purple color. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end he loved them to the end. That little phrase, to the end, is an important phrase. It is an expression that carries the meaning completely, perfectly, fully, or comprehensively to the uttermost. He loves his own to the complete extent of his capacity to love his creatures He loves them enough to make them joint heirs with Christ. He loves them enough to make them into his very image. He lavishes them with all the riches of his grace for all eternity. He loves them as fully and completely as any human can ever be loved by God. And his love knows no limits. This is also an unconditional love. Look at the context. Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples on the night he was betrayed. At this moment, he was very much aware of their failures and weaknesses and their disappointing actions. His love for them, though, had never failed. He had proved it time and time again. And he even even began their final evening together in the upper room by what? Washing their feet as if he were a lowly servant to them. His love for them was not repaid as it should have been. The disciples had ignored his love, taken it for granted, and had abused it. But he loved them to the end. In other words, this was a love that would never die. It would never wane. It was unconditional. But the expression also carries the idea of eternality. Here it speaks of a love that lasts forever. Not only did Christ love his own to the end of their lives, not only did he love them to the end of their, his earthly life, but he would love them eternally. And as they got the full revelation of the resurrected Christ, they never took it for granted after that. In the same con- context, he tells them in John fourteen two, in my father's house are many rooms and I go there to prepare a place for you. Are you guys waiting for your room at the house? <laughs> his love for his own will be manifest throughout eternity. This, of course, speaks of the particular love of God for the elect. It is not the general love that extends to all humanity. It's not a conditional love that, is given, that gives way to hatred. This is the love he has for his own. It is the love that extends from eternity past to eternity future. And that's a long time. And it is a love that will stop at nothing to redeem its object. He redeemed us all out of the pit of hell for his fallen sinners. It's just amazing love. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. John fifteen thirteen. That is precisely what he would do for them the day after he spoke these words. This love of God for his own is not bestowed on people because they show themselves worthy of it, though. We have to stay humble. The love of God for his own is not bestowed on people because they show themselves worthy of it. We should never forget that. In fact, There is nothing worthy in the recipients of his love, Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, God died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. These are not people who have somehow earned God's love. We are not people that have learned earned God's love. It is a holy, gracious love, not something anyone could ever earn through any kind of merit system. Here's where the true greatness of divine love is seen. Christ faces the cross. He will bear the sins of his chosen ones. He will undergo the agonizing wrath of God on their behalf. He will suffer the painful, lonely sense of being forsaken by the Father, not to mention the human pain of execution and murder and public shame. You know, the word excruciating comes from the crucifixion of the cross, and the pain is excruciating. And yet he is totally immersed in his love for his own as he faces death. He wants to affirm how much he loves these utterly unworthy men. He wants to affirm how much he loves, I'm sorry, I started the sentence again. This is a love that only those who belong to Christ can possibly know. It is a unique and marvelous love. It is a life-giving love. It is a love that pursues its object no matter what. It is a love that saves forever. Once saved, always saved. I think that's a truth, but you have to make sure someone's saved before you can really say that to somebody because some people have a false hope. God's love is a love that is sovereignly bestowed. In Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people, peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why did he choose them? Were they the best? Were they most righteous? Were they the most beautiful people? most God-honoring people? Why did he choose them? It was not because you were more in number than any other people, that the Lord set his love upon on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God chose Israel not because they were better than any other nation, not because they were more worthy of his love not because they were a greater and more impressive nation than any other but simply because of his divine sovereign grace someone might suggest that the words in Deuteronomy 7 are directed to an entire nation including many who evidently were not numbered among the elect after all only a remnant of Israel was saved as Paul told us in Romans 9:27 the Apostle Paul, replying to a similar objection in his letter to the Romans in 9.6 said, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. In other words, election is not determined by blood descent. So taken in light of everything scripture has to say about Israel, we know that the words of Deuteronomy 7 actually address the elect remnant. National Israel was only representative of all the elect of all time. God in his grace actually chose for himself a people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, Revelation 7, 9. When God speaks in Deuteronomy 7 of his eternal love for Israel, He's speaking of the spiritual children of Abraham, as Galatians three seven tells us. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So the love of God described in Deuteronomy seven six is a particular love for the elect, and these verses therefore describes his love for all the elect. It is an eternal love bestowed on all the on the Israelites, not because of anything worthwhile in them but simply because it was sovereign will of God to love them. And there's a real graphic picture of unfailing love. And I'm not going to read all of it. You can read it in your own time, Ezekiel 16. But it's very graphic. And I'll just give you a little taste of it. God himself, speaking through Ezekiel, explained his unique love for the elect in graphic terms. In Ezekiel 16, he, he, he pictures Israel in such a loathsome, sordid terms that within Judaism itself, this chapter is not permitted to be read in a public meeting. Like Isaiah 53 is not allowed to be read either. But this passage is not really about Israel's iniquity, is what they think. It's about the eternality of God's love. God pictured Israel as an unwanted child of a prostitute, thrown out immediately after birth into an open field, the umbilical cord still attached to the afterbirth. The child was not even washed, left for the dog to devour, no chance of survival. That, God said, was how Israel was when I found her. He was speaking of Israel during captivity in Egypt. They were despised and helpless people. No one cared about them. They were defenseless, pathetic, loathed, abhorred by everyone, and doomed to perish. They were unwanted outcasts with no hope in the world, not even land of their own. But God decided to set his love on that helpless child. Why is it that God would so forgive Israel? Because he set his love on her and made Israel his own possession. They were his own in a unique sense, the same sense in which Jesus says to of all the elect in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me, I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. This love is perfect. This love is comprehensive. This love is complete. This love is redemptive. This love is eternal. It is the love that caused him to lay down his life for his own. We ought to be in awe and like Israel humiliated, humiliated before such love. We have no right to God's love. He does not owe it to us, he, yet he condescend to love us nonetheless. If our hearts aren't stirred with love for God in return, then there's something terribly wrong with us. If our hearts aren't stirred with love for God in return, there is something terribly wrong with us. So with that, let's turn to Ephesians 3.14. I want to read Paul's words together with you as you follow along in your Bible. Ephesians 3.14. And this, this will close with this. Ephesians 3.14. For this reason... and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, your, your love for us is, is overwhelming. It's, it's just so hard to comprehend, but we're so thankful that you chose us out of this wicked world. And that we bow down to you for that love and that grace that you bestowed on us. And may we never forget. May we never feel to appreciate. May we never be thankful. May we never fail to be a witness to the world, the salt and the light, to bring the gospel to the rest that don't know you yet. We pray for them that they come to know the light. And we have to preach that light because without hearing the word, there is no salvation. And they have to hear the word from somebody. And it's probably going to be us if they are not going to a church. So we have to know the gospel and preach the gospel. We ask those who yet have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, look to him and live. Repent and live. Because there's only eternal life in Christ and no other. So believe in Jesus Christ who died for your sins. We ask that you repent and turn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.